Welcome to Chit Chat Money. My name is Ryan Henderson, and I'm joined by my co-host, Brett Schaefer. Today is our Thursday deep dive episode where we interview an analyst to discuss a single stock. And today we have on the show, David Katnarich to talk about big lots. David runs a sub, a sub stack called the Microcap. Cap is spelled with a K in, in the title, and that's where most of his investments are focused. It's in the small microcap space, and big lots was no exception. Big, big lots has a roughly $500, $500 million dollar market cap and I think it could be probably classified as higher risk higher rewards so kind of keep that in mind as you're listening David also mentioned that he was a regular listener to the show uh as over the years which is always kind of rewarding to hear but anyways before we get to the interview uh today's episode is presented presented by stratosphere the best web-based research terminal for company specific metrics like kpis and segment revenues stratosphere has clean data for kpis segment data segment data that is triple checked for accuracy and beautiful data visualizations helping save you time and frustration of digging through sec filings we honestly use stratosphere every day it's our investing home screen it's where we do base i would say it's where we start our investing day and you can use it too for free. It's 100% free um, by going to stratosphere.io. That is stratosphere.io and the link is in our show description. If you're more interested in the platform, stick around after the episode for a three-minute interview we did with Stratosphere founder Braden Dennis. But without further ado, here's our interview with David Katnarich. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Okay, today we are joined by David Kotnarich. I believe I'm saying that right. Um, and David invests primarily in the small and microcap space. You may know him as Microcap David on Twitter. He also has a Substack um, and has been putting out a lot of good content. And one of those we uh, we kind of saw on the Twitter timeline or the Twitter sphere, and it was big lots. And so we're going to talk about that. Um, Probably a name that listeners are familiar with just in terms of like brand, especially if you live in the US, but maybe not as an investment. So how did you come across this as an investment? Uh, hey, guys. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. So uh, maybe I should actually do a longer story because uh, it wasn't uh, that simple find. Uh, I actually had uh, the all is uh, bargain outlet, which uh, the American audience audience is probably also familiar with. I had it on uh, my watch list since like uh, uh, the second half of uh, 2020 as a compounder, wonderful type of business that I would once uh, like to own when um, if the price is right and uh, the facts don't change. But um, yeah, and so I was uh, the price dropped off from all is. Uh, I saw there are recent developments. Uh, I read the, the 10K, the, set, the setup uh, seemed interesting because uh, it was the lowest valuation ba based on price to sales uh, multiple uh, since their IPO. And uh, it was not that easily screenable with uh, like hedge fund analysts screen the, the thing. It uh, seemed expensive on P P basis or price to cash flow basis because they had rough uh, 2022 and 2021. 
So I uh, came across all this uh, rather 10K and then I decided to get a better overlook of the industry. And one of their main competitors, if not uh, the, the main competitor, was Big Lots. And uh, as I was uh, reading the, the 10K of the Big Lots and I also read some Sinking uh, Alpha articles about uh, the positive de developments there, I came across uh, the capital allocation uh, strategy and I uh, read that they bought back like uh, 400 million uh, shares. And naturally, I was wondering at what valuations, how much is the market cap? And it, and it turned out it was it was uh, equal to today's market cap, which is uh, insane. Also, I uh, took a look at the balance sheet. It said that uh, they have uh, doubled the retained earnings uh, of the current market cap, which means that so far since the exemption, uh, they managed to generate more profits than the whole market caps. And when you see a setup like that, uh, it seems it's either really cheap or either uh, it is going to zero. And and I want to like uh, pursue the staples of it investments because they are usually a very interesting. Uh, yeah, that's the story. No, yeah, this is a. I'm sure when me and Ryan talk in the intro, we're gonna say that this is a deep value investment, but this is a true deep value um, bargain basement investment. We're going to talk about the details. We're going to talk about what makes it maybe a little bit risky later on. But first, can you explain the Big Lots business model and who is their target customer that they refer to as, um, which I find kind of funny, Jennifer on their conference yes. calls and earnings releases? Jennifer, uh, sure. Biglos is a discount retailer, uh, mainly home discount retailer. They operate around uh, 1,400 uh, stores around uh, the US. Uh, the average stores is uh, around uh, 35,000 square feet. Um, they um, they, they um, do their merchandise in like uh, seven different categories. Uh, the largest being the furniture, 27% uh, 20, of their uh, merchandise or products. Uh, they also have uh, the hard home, home category, which is like uh, tabletops, uh, toys, home maintenance products. They also have a uh, soft home, uh, which is home decor, bedding, frames, food. Um, they also have a seasonal category, which makes up of uh, which makes up 15% uh, of their um merchandise or products in the store and it's most like um, holiday stuff and also they do have a uh, consumables part uh, of their store like beauty and cosmetics products uh, paper chemicals and the uh, last category is uh, apparel electronics and another which is uh, maybe self self explanatory so as you can see uh, furniture and home related stuff uh, make make up like 60 or 70 percent of their um, total sales and um, also besides their brick and mortars uh, they do they have an uh, e-commerce uh, platform that they started in uh, 2016 and uh, maybe how you should think about uh, the unique economics or the like how does transaction look like uh, so they source their merchandise their, their products in two different ways the first one is like um, the simple one as other retailers do they um, they buy traditionally for from from the manufacturers or vendors that are usually either located in the US or located overseas but uh, but the products that are located uh, in the US are uh, 
often manufactured from the materials overseas. So you could say that uh, they buy stuff uh, cheap from the overseas vendors. And uh, the other uh, part of their sourcing, is, uh, which is much more interesting, is uh, referred to, to closeouts. Uh, those closeouts, um, they include uh, product overruns, uh, packaging changes, um, or something like that, the discounted products, uh, liquidations. So maybe the best uh, analogy to to explain the close of the um, purchases from big lots is, let's say uh, you're having a Christmas dinner and your mother needs to cook like uh, a dinner for 10 people. And there is no way she will predict uh, exactly how much food uh, she needs to make for the whole family. And then at the end, there's like some leftovers. And that's where Big Locks uh, steps in and buys those le leftovers on the pennies, on the dollars. Okay, maybe not the pennies, but really cheap. And then they say they sell it at a premium. And uh, that closeouts are usually what which makes uh, like their treasure hunt or bargain hunt uh, products for their customers. And like traditional sourcing uh, is uh, uh, made out of. Uh, they're like private label brands that they acquired. Uh, maybe the audience is familiar with uh, Broyhill, which uh, that does furniture, uh, not furniture, yeah, furniture sales and uh, real living. Uh, they sell patio, or, or I don't know how to pronounce it because I'm not native, but uh, that's what they do. And uh, when they buy those products, they they go to their distribution centers. Uh, and their forward distribution centers and from which are then uh, they um, are shipped to the stores and uh, put on the shelves and uh, that's basically the overview of the business and jennifer uh, that is the name of uh, their core, core customer it was a uh, a brainchild from their ex-ceo actually uh, which is also called david david campisi and uh, they describe her as someone who is constantly looking for value uh, she doesn't have uh, much time to shop and often it's uh, help uh, during her trips to big big lots. That's why they introduced the sales representative concept of uh, for selling their furniture. And um, the important thing about Jennifer, maybe in the recent years, is um, they see her as a, a like community customer, and they they have a big uh, focus on community on rural rural areas uh, being the favorite location for um, people that go to discount stores in uh, their small hometowns. And um, yeah, but if you listen to their conference calls, it's uh, really funny when they refer to customer as she. And uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's kind of hilarious that they have like a tag name for their customer base. Um, so let's talk about sort of the revamp, I guess you could call it, um, that they embarked on. I think it was 2018, 2019 timeframe, which was Operation North Star. Could you explain yeah. what that is and how it's played out so far? Yeah, it's a bit cringy name, but uh, let's do it. Uh, they, <laughs> you're right. They started it in uh, 2019. Um, there a new CEO, Bruce Thorne. He joined the company in 2019 and he started a strategic overhaul of the company. And now I will go uh, through some details uh, which are presented in their 10K. Uh, they say that uh, Operation Northstar has uh, three primary objectives. 
The first one being uh, drive profitable uh, long-term growth. Uh, uh, how how will they achieve that uh, growth? Is uh, by growing their store count. Uh, they found they can increase it uh, by at least 15 uh, net new stores um, in 2022, and after 2022, they could accelerate it by uh, 80 or more per year, which is which is great. Uh, also, they um, they've been reducing uh, their store counts for underperforming stores, or uh, they were putting it like um, intervention program program that uh, boosted their same store sales. Also, the focus is um, on that that I mentioned the sales productivity. Uh, they focused on growing their Broy Hill brand. Uh, they want to grow it to uh, one billion in sales. Currently, it is in um, seven hundred million, uh, maybe a bit more. Also, they're reliving um, um, products, and also they uh, included uh, two other stuff in their uh, store. Um, layout which is the lot section uh, which is focused on uh, unique uh, limited uh, time exclusives which are primarily bargain hunt uh, products and the queue line uh, they put it um, in front of their stores uh, for people to do like uh, more more impulsive purchases under five dollars uh, which then encourage the that uh, bargain hunt experience uh, also there are on their way to accelerate their e-commerce sale now uh, now they make they make up i believe 15 percent of of whole sales i'm not sure actually okay so let's now uh, do the the second uh, objective which is fund the journey uh, how will they do it they will do it uh, with their own money which is attractive by itself uh, by expanding their gross gross margin rate and increasing store efficiency and also um, the third uh, and maybe the most important one for the shareholders is uh, their objective is to create uh, long-term shareholder value. Um, I, I have a quote uh, from the 10K, which is maybe good to read. Uh, we, we continue to optimize our capital allocation to support Operation North Star initiatives while returning capital to our shareholders through share repurchases and dividends when appropriate. So they give the excess liquidity back to you uh, which is uh, attractive uh, by itself also now uh, what, uh, how did it um, go it went um, below their predictions below expect expectations but um, also attractive for the shareholders they did um, over promise and under deliver but uh, the progress was still um, attractive um, I will give you first the good, um, the Miller Road Capital, which is a 5% owner, did a good overview, so I will um, just uh, read you or, or tell you his stuff. Um, they improved the company's uh, merchandise assortment and sales productivity. They also expanded the brands, which I mentioned. Uh, they achieved um, e-commerce sale sales penetration. Uh, they grew, which is important to mention, the um, Big, Lot, uh, Big Lots uh, Loyalty Rewards Program to 22 million members. Um, and those members make up like uh, 60 to 70 percent of sales each year. And uh, those are the members that usually do like recurring purchases. So you can be more confident that they, they just want, don't want 
will not uh, uh, like leave the company uh, the next year. And also uh, one more um, important thing, capital allocation wise, they uh, initially owned the distribution centers and uh, now they uh, did a sale and leaseback uh, activity, which is like uh, more simply explained, you, you sell your distribution center to somebody who is a uh, lesser and then they lease it to you, like you pay a lease or a rent, and uh, but you don't own the distribution center um, anymore. And they um, did one transaction in uh, 2020, which was um, 725 million. And uh, what uh, what went wrong? Well, um, it was worse than uh, than expected. Store growth. They didn't manage to pull off uh, the the uh, fifty um, locations open during the year, um, not even close. And uh, they uh, became too heavily reliant on their furniture type of items. Usually in uh, in history, Biglas was uh, much more like a bargain type of. Uh, store now it's more like discretionary also their gross margin uh, didn't improve so far we'll see how it goes uh, beyond this point and uh, it actually got worse and also they uh, timed the the buybacks um, wrongly yeah so uh, that was the good and the bad about the operation north star yeah all right yeah that's some good context and we're going to get into say what you think about the business today but one more question about you know when someone looks at the stock they're going to see it's really declined by about 75 percent since it's 2021 high what were the missteps mm -hmm. here is it just kind of the gross margin deterioration has there been a worry about say among the investment community of a huge cyclical cyclical downturn within the the furniture space what, what do you think has caused that and was it management's fault or is it kind of just, you know, they got to ride some of the industry, you know, mm -hmm. cyclicality sometimes? As you know, no, nobody likes uh, cyclicals now. And I would say that uh, it was a management's fault. Maybe I should uh, give you an overview of the last three years. Um, 2020 happened, a pandemic uh, hit and uh, everybody got their stimulus checks uh, in the pocket and everybody wanted to improve their home so naturally the the first choice for people that uh, look for uh, cheap stuff is that they go to to big lots so they had a great uh, 2020 and even uh, 2019 before that and uh, so the management assumed uh, that uh, there's going to be a even a better 2021 um, so they prepared their, their shelf uh, full of inventory. They bought uh, like 20% uh, more inventory that, than they did prior years. And then, then is, uh, that is when the disaster hit. Uh, they weren't able to, to sell those inventories and they had a high level. And um, so the holiday season was bad. The spring after that was bad. They had to do um, a lot of um, promotional activities. Also, um, if you were following uh, closely the supply chain disruptions and everything, um, the price of containers was was like um, in 2020 and early 21, uh, maybe 20x uh, than it was before the pandemic. So the freight co costs were insane. And also they did a strategic mis uh, misstep in uh, early 2022 that they locked in agreements with uh, suppliers. Uh, 
uh, and the price didn't go up. So those agreements were like um, bad uh, because they locked in a higher price. And um, yeah, they didn't manage to pull off their uh, 15 net, net new stores growth. And uh, they plowed money into CapEx uh, by opening uh, two additional uh, forward distribution centers. And, um, and the worst thing maybe is their balance sheet, which was, um, I have data here. Um, at the uh, end of Q2 of uh, 2021, they had uh, 293 million in cash and no debt. And now uh, after Q3 of 2022, they have 60 million in cash and 450 million in long-term debt. So they switched completely and uh, it was a disaster, basically. Yeah, that yeah, that is quite the uh, quite the inversion. Um, so I guess then that kind of it makes it sound sort of pessimistic or, or as if that might continue. Let's get kind of to your thesis, which is they get back to profitability. I'm assuming. Um, why do you think that's possible? What would cause them to not generate any profits from here? Let's uh, let's take uh, one one question at a time. Uh, why do you believe that uh, it was structural? I saw the um, industry peers, and uh, as you can uh, tell, if you are watching closely, everybody had uh, the, the decline in uh, gross margin rate. Maybe not everyone, but uh, especially their peers, uh, all these bargain outlet, uh, for example, they had a significant decline decline in gross margin. Uh, that's something that you really usually don't want to see because it. Uh, usually indicates the lack of pricing power. But uh, like if you look at it from other point of view, you can see that the company was uh, in business. I mean, it was a public company since uh, 1985. That's like uh, 37 or 38 years of business. And uh, so far it has shown extremely um, stable gross margin rate. I mean, it never fluctuated under 39 or above uh, 40.5, which indicates by itself that it is uh, like um, not impacted by uh, competition, that it, ha that it has some uh, pricing power or, or at least it, it is a low-cost producer. And um, out of those 37 or 35 years, they've been profitable uh, every year except for three, even in uh 08 or 09 uh they had a positive um, cash flow from operations um as people traded down from uh, higher ticket purchases to uh, more discounted stuff in big lots and uh what i assumed in the in the write-up i said if they get back to four and a half percent free cash flow margin then it's it is a like a great investment um Maybe, uh, uh, so the thing is, at the current valuation of big lots is below um, 0.1 price to sales. And if you assume their 4.5% free cash flow margin, that gets you to less than two times uh, normalized free cash flow. And that, that by itself is really cheap. So you do have a um, bad management, uh, which is... Um, kind of ruin, ruining the business in the recent years. But if you assume that uh, they are going to only 
um, generate two and a half percent or like half the four four and a half percent free cash flow margin that still gets you to like um, four times uh, free cash flow. So, um, and I think this management is incentivized to do that as they have like um, operating profit targets, EPS uh, profit targets, um, operating operating margin and sales. So uh, I think it's a short-term problem and only cyclical. And um, so far uh, they communicated it well. And uh, I do believe that uh, it will get back on track. Yeah, if I'm looking at uh, the stratosphere chart, operating margin since the great financial crisis has been around 4%. So that's not, say, asking for them to get better. It's just asking them to get back to where they were. But then COVID threw a wrench into things. If I'm looking at the number, their operating margin shot up to what, like 14%. And then now we've kind of hit the brunt of that back to negative ones. But we'll talk about the valuation a bit later and their capital allocation. Yeah, I think the and, one um, thing. Maybe, oh, go ahead. Maybe I should uh, tell you one more thing. The yeah. valuation is so low that uh, af- after the bankruptcy of um, Bet Bet and Beyond, Beyond that happened like two weeks ago. I watched the valuation of Bet Bet in and Beyond, and it was like uh, at the time higher than Big Lots valuation, which is pretty much um, insane. Yeah, and there are. Uh, we'll talk about the buyback as well, which has either been impressive or maybe aggressive. We can hear your thoughts on that, yeah. but. The one thing I think people are concerned about, and they're always concerned about with a retailer, is e-commerce competition. You wrote in your write-up that so far they've been insulated from e-commerce competition and that that should continue. What gives a discount retailer like this uh, that insulation? Okay. Um, first, I will, um, I will uh, again, uh, mention the history. If you see a gross, gross margin trend, that that's... Um, all you uh, need to look at if it's extremely stable it means it uh, doesn't face uh, competition issues but um, also uh, e-commerce and amazon primarily primarily in uh, the us um, it's there like for 25 years and uh, so far it only uh, put out of business the traditional retailers the the mom, mom and pop shops uh, and there's no not like a specific case where amazon at least that I'm not familiar with, that Amazon uh, put a discount retailer uh, out of business. Uh, not uh, not all is not big lots, uh, nothing. And um, also why I think uh, that is the case is that uh, people usually either trade their, their time or their money for um, for for the goods that are they are buying. Um, in when they buy on Amazon, they um, usually trade their money. Uh, to get the convenience to uh, to for the goods to be delivered at their do- doorstep, but um, the customers, the Jennifers that that shop in big lots, they trade their time. They uh, make a half an hour jar- jar- drive to big lots and they see what's discounted. Uh, how can um, take advantage of the opportunity or the the discounts? And um, and if you look at uh, the one guy, I don't know what's his name, made a great write-up on uh, on the Value Investors Club, and uh, he compared the prices uh, in Walmart and Amazon compared to Big Lots, and Big Lots has like a fifteen percent or twenty percent advantage. And um, also, one thing about Amazon uh, compared to Big Lots is uh, Big Lots only generates um, 
six um, six billion in sales, uh, which is a uh, three hundred million in free cash flow. If you assume the five percent margin, and three hundred million in profits is uh, nothing to to Amazon and um, and also uh, Olis, which is a main competitor of uh, of Big Lots, doesn't even have a an e commerce platform, which uh, by itself means that um, the discount uh, retail environment is not made for e-commerce but it's made for actually brick and mortars you can also see it uh, at the five below that they do operate an e-commerce platform but they get more profitability from their stores and uh, so it's just a different uh, value proposition uh, that uh, that big lots is offering and also now uh, if e-commerce uh, does heaten up or anything big lots uh, does have an e-commerce platform which is i think the, the biggest brand out there. I'm not familiar with any other brand that does um, uh, discounting stuff. So yeah, that's why I think uh, the uh, competition from uh, e-commerce is over-accentuated. Also, I imagine it's also a difficult thing to ship profitably. I believe you yeah, mentioned true. the majority of big lot sales are or, or furniture, I think I saw a stat, it was like 25% last quarter was from furniture. So I imagine that's tough to, to ship profitably. And a lot of people probably want to see it in person. Um, but yeah, I guess moving on the, the other, it sounds, I guess you could say risky. And I think you, you, you laid that out as to why. Um, and you have a quote that said, I'm confident that the stock will either crash to zero or be a five to 10 bagger in a few years. Can you talk about why you think that is? Yeah, uh, sure. But first, uh, I want to uh, mention one more thing about the, the bright question that you know, uh, uh, like, I got a, a light bulb in my head. I don't know the expression, but um, they, um, the furniture thing, I agree with you. Uh, they do have like, um, they're the only one of the retailers that have, you can uh, directly buy the furniture at the store. You don't have to wait for it to be shipped to your door. You can just um, buy it and pick it up, which is like a great thing for uh, people that um, shop there. And uh, concerning the valuation, uh, yeah, it's a bold statement, but there there are a few reasons why I think that. Um, first, uh, maybe we should take a look at the industry peers and the industry evaluations. Um, I will do it on the price to sales base basis because uh, you can, uh, I cannot like uh, normalize the earnings of each company. So it's maybe best to compare it on a price to sale basis. And so we have a uh, big lots first, which is under 0 0.5, uh, 0.1 price to sales. Then we have dollar three, which is 1.2 dollar general 1.4, five below, 3.5 price to sales and all is 1.6. So except five below, the other uh, other retailers that are competing with big lots, they have uh, like 15x premium to big lots uh, valuation. And what I think is uh, that uh, big lots is not uh, 50, 15 times uh, worse business than uh, those other retailers are. And uh, also, if uh, at 0 0.1 time sales, if your business um, goes um, in the perception from investors to, if they say, um, now they're probably saying it will go out of business the next year, and maybe in three months, uh, they assume that it will only go under in five years, 
you'll make a lot of money because uh, the multiple uh, mastery rate. And um, also, um, why I think that there is such a wide uh, distribution of outcomes is, um, I said, either 5 to 10 uh, beggar or zero. I explained the 5 to 10, but um, I didn't explain uh, the zero. The zero is uh, because they don't have an um, attractive balance sheet anymore. They destroyed it with uh, with their buybacks and they've uh, prolonged this recession is to happen. Um, I don't know if they would uh, have survived um, because uh, now their uh, product mix is uh, much more reliant uh, on the furniture and uh, discretionary type of purchases. And uh, in 08, 09, when they were profitable, it was more like bargain type of um, stuff. So uh, that's why zero is a possibility. Okay, maybe not zero because um, they have um, inventory. Um, I mean, their book value is um, at uh, one times book. So um, if you like, uh, don't look at it um, deeply, you would assume that the downside is protected because of the book value. If they could sell all, the, all their assets for the book, it will be the whole market cap and you have the downside protected. But the thing is, uh, they do have a lot of inventory on the balance sheet. And if you mark it down uh, by 50%, let's assume that, uh, that would get you to only half the book. So essentially your uh, downside at the current moment is 50% uh, in the worst case. If they don't manage to, uh, if they manage to sell inventory for 50% discount uh, and your upside is a uh, multiple re-rate, which is, uh, no one can say how much, but uh, I say five to 10 beggar. All right, you asked, uh, our next question here is about valuation, but you really covered a lot of that. And I kind of want to hit the buyback because mm -hmm. one, it was a big negative, but if they continue at these current prices uh, and they do it rationally, it could really, really help investors over the long haul. And if I'm looking at Stratosphere here, going back to say 2004, they had mm -hmm. 117 million shares outstanding, or maybe even 118 million. And today we're below 30 million. So I think that's about a 75% discount. W what are your thoughts on the buyback? Because you don't want this to be a Bed Bath & Beyond, but if they mm -hmm. stay, if, if things recover as they look like they might, they, they could be highly accredited for shareholders. Yeah, that's true. Um, actually, uh, I have a few thoughts uh, on their buybacks. Uh, the first one, uh, which... Uh, a lot of investors that they that read uh, my write-up don't agree on, don't agree on is uh, the problem wasn't about the timing of their buybacks. They say oh, they bought back uh, the at the three times the, the current price, but uh, that wasn't the problem because still at the three times the current price, their price to sales multiple was um, zero point three. So it wasn't uh, value destructive. It was like value enhancing. But um, the problem with the buybacks was that uh, they uh, was the sizing. They did so much buybacks. And uh, so they left their uh, balance sheet without cash. And that was uh, that was the main problem. And uh, historically, maybe to what to say about the buybacks, it is uh, that they were, um, they bought back uh, eight to 9% of um, the Kager, Kager was eight to 9% annually. So what you do have here is like um, shareholder friendly 
management that is willing to do it in terms of buyback and also in terms of dividend. They've been paying it uh, since 2015. Now they they cut the dividend and the buybacks. I agree with the decision because uh, the, I don't want the, the business to go under because of the dividend or the buybacks. But um, yeah, that, that are my thoughts. I don't know if I didn't answer something that you no yeah that makes sense it sounds like theoretically if the results didn't kind of deteriorate the way they did over the last two years that that buyback would have been great but kind of unfortunate timing considering that they added the debt and now they don't have the cash to do it at assuming that the if the company got back to profitability now would be the best time to do it obviously but that's with the benefit of hindsight Sorry for yeah. interrupting Ryan, but uh, let me tell you something. We have a we have a saying in Croatia. It goes something like, uh, it, "It's easy to be a general after battle." I don't know if you have it uh, in, the, in the US, but it means like um, if uh, they um, if their prediction turned out to be good, everybody would praise them for their buybacks. Uh, they did the most uh, uh, the best thing ever. They bought back. Uh, uh, have their market cap or everything, but it turns out that. Uh, environment it got to them and uh, they weren't able to um to do it but yeah all right i guess last question you've kind of alluded to it throughout the show what would you mentioned the downside what would cause that to happen how could an investment in the glass go poorly well um i have a few things about the downside uh that I don't like, um, but um, that's why you have to size it correctly. Um, the first thing is uh, when you uh, listen to the conference calls uh, from the management, they do tend to over over promise and under deliver. I usually stay and stay uh, away from those kind of businesses. Also, what could happen is uh, that these problems turn out to be structural. They don't turn out to be short term, uh, which I doubt. Also, um, there is a possibility of a dispute with China, and they, as I said, uh, source most of the most of their products from China. So they, that would have a great impact of their profitability. Also mentioned, uh, uh, they mix their product shift to discretionary products, uh, which uh, we still have to see how they do in uh, in recession because customers usually first trade down in their show, shops that they buy stuff from, they trade down to the lower ticket purchases, and then they go to like shops uh, like Big Lots, and uh, we'll see if that happens. And um, also, I have a concern if uh, the management uh, is like um, bumping their head into the wall and uh, trying to reinvent the dying business instead of like giving uh, cash back to the the shareholders and um, and the, maybe the most important thing about the downside is their uh, leverage. They do have um, 300 million in leases every year, which is like a fixed cost. They do, um, I believe uh, most of their leases uh, are, are like one-year contracts, so they can have the option not to um, renew them, but still uh, 300 million is a lot, which uh, now, it, which is like operational leverage and uh, it could have a bad effect in uh, bad times. And also uh, they do still have a big inventory buildup. And uh, now the management says that th those inventories are more like 
bargain type of stuff. Uh, but um, still, one cannot know how uh, how much um, will there be a promotional activity to, to be done with those inventories. And uh, yeah, that that's basically the downside covered. Makes sense. Sounds like it may be a good time to be a shopper at Big Lots as well. If we see sorry any any sort of liquidations on uh, on some of the inventory they have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, I think that's all the questions we have. Brett, do you have any more? I'm getting I'm getting the shake of the head. So that is going to do it, David. This was fun. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I'm sure we'll have to have you on again sometime. Um, but let's close close this out with a disclosure. Uh, Brett and I are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. Uh, we are, however, general partners at Arch Capital, so clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, David, again for coming on the show. We'll see you all next time. Okay, I am welcomed by the founder of our exclusive sponsor, Stratosphere.io, Braden Dennis. Braden, welcome. I wanted to basically give listeners that are interested in Stratosphere more context around what the platform is. So let's start there. What is Stratosphere? And then why did you decide to start it? Yeah. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And I'm glad to be sponsoring the podcast as as a listener myself. I like the deep dives. I like the different guests, the different perspectives on uh, some interesting companies. So I think it's a good concept for a podcast, which is kind of what led me down to making Stratosphere in the first place, which was I was making content online and frustrated with the tools that were available to me. So I started building uh, a very scrappy version of the product just for free, just to figure out like, how can I overlay 10 years of financial side by side up to 35 years we have now? And how can I actually build out a proper database of, of company KPIs that are not just revenue, but like, if you're looking at like Costco, like how many warehouses do they have? How many paid members are, are in like our Costco members? Or, you know, if I want to do a comp against like the streaming, like how many Netflix subs versus uh, HBO plus discovery plus, no Disney plus, like how do I build out proper comps of those? Because those are the metrics that actually move the business. Those are the ones that actually move the needle more than any like gap financial metric you'll find. And so it started off as just purely a passion project. And I figured let's just make the leap into entrepreneurship and uh, see where it goes. And, you know, it brought, brought us here today. Yeah. And like you mentioned, it, it is the stuff that you can't find anywhere else, at least not in a, I mean, you could find it page by page and on their financials. Exactly. But you can go through 35 uh, PDF filings and find it, be, be my guest. And, and, that, and that's basically what we did for a long time. So what do, I guess, maybe describe the pricing model so people know, sure. but uh, you're going to say it, it, there's, there's a free platform. What do free users get? Yeah, good good thing. Cause our, our mission was to always build a free platform. And and so we really kept true to our mission and give like an amazing platform for free, which gives you 10 years of financial statements on 40,000 global securities. So we don't list you just to US securities, it's on global stocks. We give you a watch list, the screener, comparisons on competitors 
fundamental charting up to 10 years, filings, transcripts. You can look at the press releases right inside the app, news, ETFs, funds, super investors, hedge fund letters, investor holdings, and financial calendars. Those are all the features you'll get on uh, on the free tier. Now, if on, on the the middle tier, the personal tier, you're going to unlock up to 35 years of financials and just kind of like nice to have, like quality of life, like notifications being built in, um, price targets for building models, uh, like business owner mode where you can hide prices, like kind of like just that next level for, for individual investors who want to level up. And then the the top tier is for like investment teams and professionals who want to unlock that KPI data and request KPI coverage as well. Like a firm will be like, here, we want these 10 names in our coverage and in your coverage. And then you'll have basically our, our entire universe that we're looking at, which is great, right? Because like earnings season comes around and we have it updated within 15 minutes when Netflix comes out with their net subscriber ads, like it's right there in one place, uh, especially easy to handle around the, the peak of earnings season that, that matters a lot for these people. And so we have a, a premium tier for that as well. That's the, that's the three plans that are available today. And now a perfect time to shameless plug our code. If you use CCM, you get 15% off any of the paid plans, but I think that covers it pretty well. Uh, if you're interested, please go ahead and check out stratosphere.io. We'll, we'll have a link in the uh, description as well, but uh, thank you, Brayden, for joining us. Ryan, keep it up. I really like what you and Brett are doing and uh, I'll be listening along.